Welcome to episode 338 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We are lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And the views we're about to express are not uh, the, the views of our institutions, our clients, our friends, our families, our pets. And frankly, we're not going to promise that the, they're the views we'll express three weeks from today. Uh, but we're going to have a, a great interview uh, with people I, I have uh, a lot of respect for uh, uh, Mark Montgomery and Frank Salufo. But since they're also going to join us uh, for some of the news roundup, I'll introduce them along with the participants in our news ra- uh, roundup. Uh, uh, so that includes Charles Eliput, uh, who's a partner at Steptoe, uh, who heads the EU cybersecurity data and privacy practice. Charles, great to have you. Thank you, Stuart. And Mark McCarthy, who is an adjunct faculty at Georgetown University's communications program. Uh, Mark, good to have you. Delighted to be here. All right. Brian Egan, who is my partner and who works with me on national security, investment reviews, and uh, other issues, Uh, a uh, uh, former member uh, of the Obama administration, uh, I hesitate every time I read about the transition for fear that they're going to call him back. But uh, uh, Brian, it's uh, especially good to still have you. (laughs) Hi, Stuart. All right. Uh, And Mark Montgomery. Uh, Mark is uh, one of the people we're going to be interviewing. Uh, He's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy and uh, was a a senior advisor to the congressionally uh, created Cyberspace Solarium Commission, which we're going to be talking about. Before that, he was policy director for the Senate Armed Services Committee under Senator McCain. uh, And before that, a uh, rear admiral in the nuclear Navy. Mark, great to have you. Uh, Glad to be here, sir. Okay. And he's going to be paired with Frank Salufo, uh, who's uh, a longtime friend, uh, goes back to the early 90s, I think, Uh, now a director at Auburn University's uh, uh, McCrary Institute for Cyber and Critical Infrastructure Security. And he too was on the Cyberspace Solarium Commission and also chaired uh, a Homeland Security Advisory Council subcommittee on economic security. And uh, those are the topics that we're going to be engaging with him. Frank, great to have you. Thank you, Stuart. And dare I say, uh, it was an absolute privilege to work with you. Terrific. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. Okay, let's get started on the news. Uh, Brian, uh, um, the uh, administration, the Trump administration is not going out quietly. Uh, uh, Some think it's not going out at all, but uh, it's certainly determined to do as much as it can to China and Chinese companies as possible. And it's got a new uh, uh, line of attack uh, uh, that they just came up this week. What is the Trump administration doing? That's right, Stuart. So on Thursday, President Trump signed a new executive order under his emergency authorities, IEPA, that bans U.S. investments in communist Chinese military companies. And that's the phrase used at the EO. And it's tied to a statute from the 1990s that requires the Defense Department to publicly identify these companies. Uh, Now, a couple of things to keep in mind about this. One is that the definition of communist Chinese military companies is very broad, so much so that you might look at the list of identified companies and say, why are some of these companies called communist Chinese military companies? 
essentially anybody who's affiliated with the Chinese government can potentially be added to the list. So they've got a couple of Chinese. They've got uh, they've got China Telecom on there, if I remember. Maybe China Mobile. There's some things that sound kind of commercial, and then some things that sound like they are defense contractors. So it is an odd assortment of companies. That's exactly right. Some of them seem very obvious, and others less so. Um, and the the purpose for this law was not punitive or sanctions originally. It was really originally designed as a due diligence tool for U.S. companies so that they could avoid doing business with such companies if they chose. But there's a lot of pressure from Congress uh, and in the Trump administration to put some teeth behind this list. So the EO that came out on Thursday was the first step to do so. Now, the, the immediate impact appears to be fairly minimal because many of the companies on the list aren't actually traded publicly or they have very limited exposure to U.S. investments. Um, but this could have some kind of knock-on effects. It could be intended to scare or keep away U.S. investors from other Chinese companies for fear that those companies could be added to the list down the road. Yeah, it's a proliferation. Uh, the, uh, I, I would say the strategy is a proliferation of retaliatory and decoupling tools. And this is another one that says there are going to be companies that cannot take advantage of U.S. capital markets. Um, and we'll start with this list, even if it may not make complete sense. Uh, um, and, I, I, you know, it's not completely crazy. There is nothing that uh, Donald Trump can do to make his relationship with uh, Xi Jinping worse. Uh, and uh, he's produced, it's like MERV missiles. You, you have so many reentry vehicles that uh, uh, the Biden administration can shoot down a few and claim to have um, helped China and still have an enormous array of decoupling tools to choose from. Yeah, this this might be an area where they act. The, a new administration may actually want to continue this policy or adjust it slightly without taking it off the table. Uh, so, you know, this is uh, w one where there's probably broad agreement that U.S. investors shouldn't actually be funding Chinese military companies. Uh, looking behind the curtain and figuring out what that term means, though, is going to be a little bit more challenging. Yeah, I I think the the Pentagon's going to be shocked to discover that this this list has any meaning at all. Uh, so the next time they put it together, they're going to have to think think kind of carefully. Um, okay, I. Uh, uh, Charles, uh, the uh, we we spent a long time interviewing a uh, um, Justice Department official about what Schrems two might mean, and he offered a bunch of uh, arguments that uh, U.S. companies might make to minimize the impact of Schrems two. Uh, now we've got the uh, European Data Protection Supervisors weighing in with their own thirty eight page list of. Uh, uh, things that Schrems 2 requires for people who are relying on the standard contractual clauses. Uh, um, how did our friends at the Justice Department do in offering arguments that the EDPS might accept? Yeah, thanks, Duvon. And um, it's um, so th last week was a busy week with indeed uh, a mix of EDPS and EDPB and EU um, uh, stepping in. So that's a lot of acronyms, but uh, let's try to uh, take them step by step. So first, we had the EDPB coming up with recommendation on what companies should be doing post trends too. So we remember we had trends too in July, a lot of uncertainty. Uh, a lot of uh, um, 
countries offering solutions like the one you, you mentioned with the U.S. stepping in saying maybe the court hasn't really understood the U.S. surveillance system and there is a way to keep going and, and transferring data to the United States. Um, whether that's something that we will be able to buy in thanks to uh, the EDPB work remains to be seen, but um, at least with um, the EDPB guidelines order, what we now have is a methodology. So we know that indeed as part of assessing data transfer, there is six steps that companies need to undertake. We will not go through the six steps, but yours, so uh, understanding what is the um, legal system in the country of the data importer is one of the six steps that is um, contemplated there. If you, um, depending on, on your assessment, if you consider that the a country of the data uh, importer has a level of protection that is the same as the EU, you can basically stop. And of course, we would really love to support the idea that if you just buy in the US argument, you can stop and have uh, data transfer uh, keep going in without any kind of supplementary measure. Um, you need to be a bit brave to uh, go through that way, and I'll, I'm happy to provide more color on why it's the case. But um, but oh, I, I think there we, is all, clearly... we all get it. Uh, the, the European Court of Justice thought it had put a stake in the heart of U.S. law, and and the Justice Department found some plausible arguments for reviving the adequacy of U.S. law, but no one thinks that there is a data protection authority in Europe that's going to be fully comfortable with this. You're buying a lawsuit if you if you take that that view. But there may be some people who'd rather buy a lawsuit than than to uh, move all their data back to Europe. Yeah, or even frankly, rather than going through the onerous uh, steps that the EDPB commands to then determine what you should be doing. And, and that's fully fair and, and, and a fair assessment. But maybe we should read that in conjunction with the other piece that went out from the EDPS this time. So EDPS is, if you want, uh, has a dual hat. So it's first the secretariat of the EDPB, but it's also the authority, um, so the kind of data protection officer, so to speak, for all the EU institutions. And they offered, indeed, their vision as to what HEMS2 means for the EU institution. And that's, I think, it's, it's interest, interesting, sorry, to, um, to, to know and keep in mind. So they first said every EU institution needs to map their data transfer and report back to the EDPS with three things. One are... Um, transfer with no legal basis. So the, it's good to see that apparently on the EU side, you can transfer with no legal basis and everyone is fine. So or at least uh, they, they might not be fine anymore, but that's one of the things you need to report. Then you need to report transfer based on derogation, not something that is really covered by Schrems 2. And then you need to report of all U.S transfers, so transfer to the U.S., presenting high risk for data subjects, but the EDPS doesn't offer any guidelines whatsoever as to what those high risk means. And that also means that if you transfer to China, Russia, Malawi, or Myanmar, you are fine because at least you shouldn't report as a new institution to the EDPS. So that's kind of short version uh, and immediate things. And the EDPS also strongly encourage 
EU institution to avoid processing activities that involve transfer of personal data to the US. So that's the kind of uh, things that is really mentioned black, black and white there. So as an EU institution, you uh, should avoid transferring data to the US. How EU institutions will be able to obey and, and, and manage this remains to be seen, but at least um, it's uh, some homework for the EU institution themselves. So. Yeah, but that's that's just uh, you know the various arms of the European Union, the, the people in Brussels mainly. Yeah, uh, um, for ordinary companies, there are some there's some decent news in the EDP. Uh, uh, report as I read it. It looked as though they they do think that if you encrypt the data that that provides protection in transit and maybe if it stays encrypted and the keys remain in Europe, uh, uh, you can move it to the United States and leave it there and not worry about uh, the uh, the possibility of the government requesting access because they'd have to ask a European who could decide whether to comply or not. Am I reading this right? Yeah, you're reading that absolutely right. So um, indeed, by the time you have as a company's assets that eventually the U.S not offering a level of protection that is equivalent to the EU, then uh, the EDPB uh, guide or recommendation provides for a number of technical, organizational, or contractual measures that you can put in place to try to sort that out. And one of the things that is clearly um, put a, a great emphasis on is on the technical side, uh, with encryption really uh, being at the heart, let's say, of the um, of the EDPB paper, um, that might be onerous requirement for uh, companies as well. But at least it's there, and and that means that if you have uh, state of the art encryption, um, you might indeed be on the safe side. So, last my last question to you: the other th- um, fairly plausible argument that the U.S. made was that, hey, you know, we're only interested in a very small uh, amount of personal data. And a lot of data comes to the United States for processing that we don't have the slightest interest in. And uh, the companies that uh, process that here have never heard from the U.S. intelligence community and probably never will. Um, I didn't see that argument directly addressed by the EDPB. I got the sense that there were some sentences in there that were put in there to hold it up like they were holding up a dead rat by the tail, but they didn't quite uh, reject the possibility that you could say, it is a fact I've never received a request of this kind, and therefore I do not believe there's any risk. Yeah, and and frankly, I think there you can probably, if you read the uh, recommendation from A to Z, you can see the tension there because um, they initially start saying the likelihood that the data will be eventually uh, coded by any uh, agencies is not relevant in the assessment. So uh, irrespective of the likelihood of interception, you need to run through the assessment. But if you go a bit uh, down the line, you can still see that that should play a role. For example, um, you have in the measures that you can ask um, your data importer to to, uh, 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 introduce, you can ask for reports and statistics on how much uh, of those requests are are knocking on the door. So clearly it has to play a role. And that's normal because if there is only a very little likelihood that you 
uh, have those things intercepted, I agree that that should be factored in the assessment. That otherwise, it's completely unreasonable. Okay, so one one solution for the personal data you're conveying over Zoom phones is to get the end-to-end encryption that the that Zoom. Oh wait, um, uh, Mark, uh, uh, Zoom advertised end-to-end encryption for a long time before they actually had it, and it looks like the FTC has uh, caught up with them and extracted a uh, uh, consent decree uh, because they weren't really, strictly speaking, accurate when they said it was end-to-end encryption. That's right, Stuart. The, the FTC announced a settlement this week, and it was under their deception authority. They, they said, uh, uh, you know, Zoom, if you, if you say you've got end-to-end encryption, and if you say you can't really listen in, then you actually have to do it. Uh, and in fact, um, Zoom didn't, didn't really do it. Uh, Zoom very, very quickly said, you're right, and and they, uh, they, they jumped in to, to try to fix it. And just last month, at the end of October, they, they put together a, a real uh, end-to-end encryption package for their, for their users. The problem, of course, is that if you think you're uh, in an end-to-end encryption circumstance, then you feel a little bit more comfortable and you think your health and financial information might be, might be protected. Uh, so it was a deception. Yeah, you know, yes and no. Look, you, you, if you're going to use Zoom, you're trusting the people who wrote the software. And all that their non-end-to-end encryption uh, product did is that it stopped off, had a cup of coffee in plain text uh, at uh, Zoom uh, uh, servers, and then went on encrypted to the other end. Um, and if you think, oh, well, I can't trust uh, uh, Zoom with that, then you can't really trust it to uh, to be providing your communication software. Uh, I, and actually, I thought that was what was interesting is they threw the they, – they, investigated everything. They, they actually let them off with a pretty easy uh, consent decree, uh, except the question of where's your code come from? How much Chinese influence is there on your code or your company? I keep hearing these little rumors that it's a U.S. company, but the code all comes from China. And are you sure you want to rely on that? Uh, um, and uh, uh, just to ride my hobby horse for a minute, this is what's wrong with the FTC, unlike the FCC. They don't think of themselves as having a national security role, and they don't ask the national security agencies, while we're investigating these guys, what should we ask them to set national security uh, concerns at rest? Uh, uh, They just go off and say our highest mission is protecting consumers, not protecting national security. So I've ridden my hobby horse once again. uh, (laughs) But they do want to constrain themselves to being a consumer protection agency and and they did find something unfair as well as deceptive about what the, what Zoom was doing they you know they 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 uh, didn't store uh, some of the recordings properly they stored them in unencrypted fashion and they and and they and they they put some software on, on users uh, computers that would never go away right it just kept com- coming back and coming back right it was the undead software but the, 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 those issues got fixed. I mean, the, the bottom line is that the FTC actually was on the ball here, and they pushed Zoom to do a better job. So it was a good example of them acting effectively as a consumer protection agency. As a consumer, yes. But but there are national security issues here that we really should be thinking about uh, more carefully. And it's shocking that uh, you can scare companies more with failure to protect 
consumer data than with failure to protect national security because of the limitations on the FTC's understanding of its role. Okay. Um, so while we're on this topic, let's talk TikTok. Uh, I, uh, Brian, there's enormous confusion out there about where things stand with TikTok. We've got all these uh, uh, court injunctions flying um, and two different, maybe three different sets of proceedings. There's a WeChat proceeding and then there's two involving TikTok. Uh, are, is everything stayed and am I going to lose my 50 buck bet with Nick Weaver uh, that uh, uh, this will be resolved before January 20? <laughs> yeah, I don't know about the bet, but I think uh, everything is currently stayed by the courts. Uh, TikTok's actually, its parent ByteDance is having a fair amount of success in the courts. There are two different TikTok bans at play. One is related to CFIUS and TikTok's U.S. operations, which were originally part of a company called Musical.ly, which ByteDance acquired without CFIUS approval in 2017. And in August of this year, President Trump issued an order under CFIUS requiring ByteDance to divest those U.S. operations because they had failed to get CFIUS approval and because uh, the president saw national security concerns with the acquisition. That was supposed to take place last week. Uh, then also what was supposed to take place last week was a separate ban that President Trump uh, created under his emergency authorities, IEPA that would essentially prohibit TikTok from being used in the United States by cutting off its access to all sorts of services. So two bans, one requiring ByteDance to sell TikTok, one that would prohibit TikTok from essentially being operated in the United States. Both were supposed to take place last week. Neither actually took place last week. The, the first, the CFIUS ban, uh, was extended briefly by the Treasury Department after ByteDance complained. And they said, look, we've been trying to negotiate a resolution. Uh, the, this negotiation had actually been in the press reports uh, over the last few months involving uh, potentially Microsoft first, then Walmart and Oracle, where those companies would acquire at least part of TikTok. Uh, this is the area where President Trump was initially seemed to be supportive, then he seemed to waffle on it, and we've heard nothing for several weeks, which is not surprising in a way because you typically don't hear what CFIUS is up to, but uh, according to ByteDance, CFIUS hasn't been up to much at all. So on Friday- So uh, am, I, am I right? There's no court order prohibiting uh, that, or, that from going into effect. That was a voluntary act on the part of the uh, uh, Treasury goaded by a court filing, but it's it's not clear that any court has said you can't uh, enforce the CFIUS order, is it? No, the, the court didn't say that. Uh, and you, I think you're right that Treasury would say it was a voluntary decision on their part to extend these negotiations for 15 days through November 27th. Uh, but I, I think ByteDance was leveraging uh, a lawsuit to try to force Treasury's hand. And, and in fact, it was a compromise. ByteDance asked for 30 days. Treasury gave them 15 days. Now, whether they're actually going to resolve things in 15 days, maybe that's where you and Nick have to you know, double down on your $50 bet. Uh, I would say unlikely, uh, but we'll see. Yeah, I, and I'm, I'm betting on Cepheus's ability to make its um, uh, rules stick in a way that the untested and 
ill thought through IEPA uh, proceedings were not, uh, and that's that's where my fifty bucks is riding. Uh, but we'll see. Uh, uh, it may be um, as. Casey Stengel once uh, said uh, when he went out to uh, second base to um, show a, uh, a, a, a rookie second baseman how to feel the ball. And the first um, ball hit a rock and hit Stengel right in the face. And he threw down his glove. He threw down the ball. He turned to the uh, to the rookie and he said, you've screwed up this position so bad, nobody can play it. I, and I can't help thinking there's a little bit of a risk that uh, all those uh, uh, it's shaky IEPA cases have uh, created a miasma over this that's going to affect Cepheus, but we'll see. Uh, okay. Um, the, um, well, actually I'll go back to you because Europe is um, engaged in export control, sort of, of cyber surveillance stuff, right? uh, software tools and the like. Uh, and, it sounds like a big deal. I thought it was a big deal. They've they, they, they adopted this procedure and uh, announced that they were going to impose human rights tests on exports of things like hacking teams uh, products. Uh, and then when you, the more I read it, the less it seemed to do. Uh, what did it actually do? <laughs> this is a good story to flag for the critics in Congress who don't like our export control regulator uh, at the Commerce Department. And they say they're too slow. If, if our regulator is too slow, then Europe's regulator is a dinosaur. For the last five years, Parliament and the European Council have been trying to come up with a framework for regulating the export of uh, certain technologies and goods for human rights reasons. This is something the U.S. already does, um, and uh, the Europeans have not. Uh, what was announced last week was a political commitment uh, between Parliament and the Council to do more in this space, to regulate, for example, high-performance computers or drones or certain materials that could be used uh, by civilian agencies, security services to violate human rights. Now, nothing has actually been put in place yet. This is going to lead to additional negotiations, a full, uh, uh, something has to be passed by the European Parliament, as I understand it. Um, and this is an area where, although the Europeans are acting unilaterally, this kind of fits nicely into what the U.S. government is trying to do right now by regulating emerging technologies, by re-reviewing its own human rights export controls. Because one of the things that you hear on both sides of the ocean from the companies who have to deal with these controls is, don't just put them on us, put them on the other guy as well. Because if you just put them on us, we're going to lose and the other guy is going to just get all our business. So the, the more the U.S. and the European Union can actually come together in these areas, I think the more effective the controls might be and the, the less bellyaching there may be from, from tech companies and others who'd be subject to the controls. Although I, I, I noticed that the, their big principle was transparency of decisions by the, the local national decision makers about whether to issue a license. And if I remember right, it said you either got to tell us whether you had which products you've approved to which countries uh, um, or you got to tell us you're not telling us. Uh, <laughs> I thought, okay, I, I, I'm guessing the people who don't want to talk about what they're doing are going to say, yeah, I'm not telling you. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's probably true. Okay, um, Australia 
uh, often goes where uh, the rest of uh, uh, the Five Eyes fear to tread. Uh, and uh, Mark, they have proposed, they, this is a long way from being adopted, but uh, you don't propose stuff in a parliamentary system unless you think you're going to adopt something very close to it. Uh, a law that basically puts the uh, government in charge of defending networks to the point of being able to go in and tell people who are responsible for critical infrastructure, you know, you're doing this all wrong. We're taking over. Yeah, it's it's really an astonishing thing. It's it's Australia's Department of Home Affairs, uh, which put out this critical infrastructure bill uh, that, as you say, gives them authority over the cybersecurity practices of a whole range of companies. I mean, the scope is, is really pretty broad. I mean, it, it includes telephone companies, ISPs, and of course, defense and space industries, but, but also financial services uh, companies, food and grocery companies. It covers uh, data centers and cloud service providers if they have significant uh, personal information about Australian citizens. Uh, and and it, it really is an, a broad extension of authority. So naturally, it got to be very controversial. The, uh, uh, the, the financial services companies said, hey, we're already covered. Leave us out. The food and grocery uh, companies said, I don't want to be covered. I'm not critical infrastructure. And the state said, hey, this is my jurisdiction. Keep out. Uh, so the department has decided to put it out for further comment, and we'll see where it finally winds up. But it, it is quite a, 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 a brouhaha down there in, in Australia. All right. Uh, so um, I want to talk about the election, kind of now that we got it more or less in, in practically everybody's rearview mirror. Um, a, a, but first, uh, uh, Charles, the... Uh, there's been a decision out of uh, the European uh, uh, High Court that um, I, I think Americans are going to find a little hard to fully understand. Basically, there's this um, uh, Green Party member who objected to being called a member of a fascist party and then went on in the most counterintuitive possible way to demonstrate that maybe she was uh, by suing for defamation, saying no one can repeat that uh, a claim or anything like it anywhere in the world and uh, having that imposed on uh, uh, U.S. companies that they now are not allowed to have Americans see that this woman whose name I can barely pronounce uh, uh, has been accused with considerable justice of belonging to a fascist party. Um, uh, does, did this make any news at all or is this just kind of a standard fare in Europe these days? Yeah, it's a good point, and I'm glad you, you are not trying to pronounce the name of, of that person. I, I won't try neither. So, um, uh, and hopefully, we will not be considered as uh, having defamatory uh, kind of messaging to her. No, so, we could call her McFashy um, face if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. Um, but, but to your point, so frankly, it's a news that is not really news, um, but that is still relevant to keep in mind because it announced other news. And all of that seems very complicated, but let me just give uh, an explanation in one minute. So um, 
What we had last week is the Austri Austrian uh, Supreme Court uh, ruling out following uh, a decision from the Court of Justice of the European Union back in 2019 and just confirming that decision. So what was that decision all about? It was basically about putting some responsibilities on platforms to um, moderate what is called illegal content. Um, if you just um, flag that news as this, so responsibilities for platforms to uh, uh, to have some responsibility in uh, putting out content that is considered as illegal. It sounds weird probably from the US side, but it's much more reasonable from the EU side because that's exactly the direction of travel with the EU um, supposed to announce uh, as of early December, so probably around 9 December, uh, in what is called the Digital Service Act. Uh, something that is exactly uh, around the lines of what the Court of Justice uh, decided uh, a year ago. So we will be, uh, or we will have more responsibilities for platforms to deal and moderate what is called or, or supposed to be considered as illegal content. So, so it's news, but for more news to come. Okay, so I, I what I find interesting is they don't care that 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 statement would not have been illegal or defamatory in the United States, uh, uh, and therefore should be legal to say in the United States because uh, their moral standards are so much higher than ours that uh, uh, they can ignore ours, uh, um, and uh, and it's yet another party that that feels quite comfortable uh, uh, censoring what Americans can read and say. Um, it's everybody but the U.S. government gets to do that, apparently. All right. Now, let's talk about the election. Uh, um, looking back now, we, we had all these worries uh, uh, that there was going to be misinformation, that there was going to be uh, hacking by foreign governments, uh, uh, that there was going to be um, violence. Um, I, and uh, I, I'll just ask some of our uh, participants to talk about some of those topics. Brian, uh, how did uh, how did the hacking thing work out? Well, I think that the U.S. government can kind of do a victory lap in this area. Uh, in in my view, uh, what what we've seen at least publicly is uh, very limited success. There were reports of. Um, some misinformation uh, that was thwarted by uh, Cyber Command. Uh, but really, I don't think that we saw a lot of foreign hacking or other influence. There are allegations made by the Trump people, of course, of domestic problems, uh, but really nothing uh, on the foreign side. Uh, and so I think this means success by the U.S. government. I think that's right, because the, probably because there was never much of a threat a, a, except of possibly somebody wanting to hack and interfere with the election, uh, although nobody had ever successfully done that before. Um, eh, and the more we look at the alleged Russian interference in the election in 2016, um, the more it looks like BS apart from the very effective hacking of the DNC, uh, that hack and leak uh, uh, episode was enormously effective. 
but the 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 effort to say that they influenced uh, Americans and created all this uh, uh, dispute uh, and division in the United States with a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of ads that practically nobody saw, I, I think that was just part of you know the Hillary Clinton uh, sour grapes uh, uh, campaign to say oh I lost because it wasn't fair because the Russians picked on me. Um, they did pick on her and she did lose in part because of what they did to her. But the idea that they were going to do use misinformation was never plausible and has turned out not to be real. Um, except <laughs> that it turned out to be great for the Biden campaign because they got to, to, to yell about misinformation and claim foreign misinformation in the context of allegations of Biden family corruption. And they got those stories shut down, which, you know, now and now that we can look back at how close the election was, if those stories had not been shut down the way they were, they they could easily have tilted the election in Trump's favor. So this is this is one where the argument about uh, uh, misinformation from foreign governments has turned out to be great for the Democrats in two elections already. I suspect the Democrats wouldn't agree with you looking at the results across the board. Uh, but, you know, um, I think the bottom line is we just didn't see a lot uh, of interference this time. The U.S. government hasn't reported it. There was a public report of the Proud Boys uh, through Iran uh, posing as a Proud Boys in uh, social media that yeah, was cut down. And, and it was clearly uh, designed, I thought, to, 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 to make Trump look bad because he was going to be associated with the Proud Boys. And they wanted people, since they were talking to Democrats, they wanted them to think that uh, bad things were being threatened by a, a Republican aligned force. Uh, yeah, but that was, you know, it was it was incompetent uh, and therefore ineffective. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, Facebook and Google said we're not going to allow political advertising in the last week. And uh, even after the election, they have continued to say we're not allowing political advertising. Mark, uh, uh, what does that have to do with protecting the election exactly? So th th they say that they're they're uh, continuing the ad bans, uh, political ad bans to reduce the opportunities for confusion or abuse. They they thought that um, these kind of ads might contribute to post-election civil unrest. Uh, and, and so they've continued the ad bans, and they aren't really being very clear about how long they're going to continue them. It probably makes some sense to make sure that uh, that method of amplification isn't available in this kind of charged circumstance, but it obviously can't continue indefinitely and certainly shouldn't continue as people gear up for the Georgia campaign. We're just waiting to see what they might be doing in that area right now. Yeah. Um, okay. Um, CISA, uh, the DHS's uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security uh, Administration, uh, uh, maintained a rumor control hotline uh, that uh, uh, appears to have gotten uh, its um, uh, undersecretary in pretty serious trouble. Uh, uh, that's uh, Chris Krebs. We've been, had him on the program a couple of times. Uh, and uh, it looks as though he finally shot down one too many rumor that the president had tweeted. Uh, uh, and now there are the, the, the biggest rumor that requires rumor control is that he is not long for the administration. Uh, Frank, I know you wanted to talk about this. So uh, uh, weigh in. 
Thank you, Stuart. And I, I simply just wanted to underscore that uh, Chris has really been a, a steady hand at the tiller of CISA. I, I do think they've hit their stride and not to disagree with some of the uh, previous points made, but but I do think the fact that we put our adversaries on notice, the fact that Cybercom took some publicly noted uh, actions in the midterm elections of 2018, and the fact that CISA, most notably in, in, in syncing up with our state and local authorities, put a huge effort into that, uh, was, was time well spent. Because quite honestly, it did deter, potentially dissuade, uh, and, and uh, as we saw in 2018, potentially even compel bad behavior, since it's not just Russia. The truth is, is others are picking up a page from the 2016 playbook and and they certainly demonstrated their intent around some of these matters. So long winded way of saying I I think Chris hit his stride and and has been a steady hand uh, at CISA's uh, helm and and hopefully these lessons continue going forward. Well, let me, let me say it even more bluntly. It would be a shame to fire him. Uh, he is the best thing that has happened to DHS and cybersecurity in the last uh, 15 years. Uh, uh, and, uh, and and this is, you know, uh, if this is what, what he leaves office under, it is a badge of honor. <laughs> well said. Okay, so Frank uh, and Mark Montgomery, uh, I'm going to tr- use this opportunity since Frank's already talking to see if we can't transition to our interview. Um, you guys have both uh, um, it, it chaired or been directors of uh, uh, reports on supply chain security, which sounds just like the most boring topic on the planet, and yet it's gotten a remarkable amount of high-level and national security interest. Uh, uh, and so let me start, Mark Montgomery, with you. Uh, you are the director of the Solarium, Cyberspace Solarium Commission. Uh, um, can you give us a little bit of background about the Solarium Commission and why it got interested in supply chain issues? Uh, sure. Thanks, Stuart. And uh, first, I'd also join um, uh, Frank uh, Salufo in saying that we thought Chris Krebs did a great job, not just with the election, but throughout his three years as the CISA director. And, the, and I would say I can speak for all of the cyberspace commissioners when I say that he was one of our most um, important briefers and supporters throughout the process. Um, the commission was set up by the National Defense Authorization Act in um, 2019. It was set up by Senator, you know, approved by Senator McCain, and not a big fan of commissions, but he was a big fan of getting things done right and tackling wicked problems effectively. And we, I think he had come to the conclusion, along with a lot of other um, congressional leaders like Representative Jim Langevin and Senator Ben Sass, that we had reached a point where we were no longer effectively deterring adversary behavior throughout the spectrum of cyberspace, especially in that area we like to clo- call below the use of force. So below some level, which they felt the United States wouldn't respond at, adversaries had the ability to act with relative impunity. And the kind of cases you look at there are, you know, 10 to 15 years of Chinese intellectual property theft that the Intellectual Property Theft Commission has said cost the United States trillions of dollars in unrealized GDP. Um, Chinese theft of 24 million officer personnel management records of government employees. 
uh, the Russian cyber-enabled information operations attack on our 2016 elections, which were uh, more effective than we saw in 2018 and 2020. The North Korean attack on uh, Sony and even the Iranian attack on um, on uh, our banking system 2012, 2013. And then the growing amount of criminal behavior, non-state actor behavior, theft and ransomware. So all those came together to say, we got to do something. Uh, Senator McCain said, I want to make this fast. I want the report back in a year. And I don't just want a report. I want legislative and policy remedies. So we wrote a report quickly. It's a good report, www.solarium.gov, if you want to read it. A good 10-page unclassified and classified description of the problem. Actually, actually, I think we, we, we covered it here in an interview with uh, uh, Senator King uh, and uh, um, uh, one uh, uh, yes, I, I, I and uh, it got went through it. It was, it was, it is very. It's just a little more ambitious than is quite possible politically now, but very realistic in what it asks for. And you know, you have to stretch a little uh, if you're going to be uh, improving things. Exactly, you know, and that's exactly the thought. You know, we we end up with eighty recommendations. Fifty of them are legislative. We were able to get 35 in play in this year's legislature, the 2016 Congress, the, 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 excuse me, the 116th Congress, the second uh, cycle here. And uh, about 25 to 30 of our recommendations are still making their way through. So five or 10 have been shredded. But, you know, we're getting over half our initial recommendations probably into law. And one of the other recommendations right. is to extend this a year and we'll attack it in the first year of the 117th Congress. I think that's a great idea because it was bipartisan from the start. Senator King is a uh, is, is is an independent slash Democrat, uh, and uh, so it, it it doesn't come with a uh, a, a Trump administration label. Uh, and so uh, carrying over to uh, the formative years of the Biden administration makes a lot of sense. No, I think so. And it is nonpartisan. I mean, now look, if you put the word election in front of anything, it's partisan. So one of our recommendations is on election security. Probably that one, one party may or may not like more than the other. But I'll tell you, not based on the legislators. Routinely, Senator King would argue for a point of view that I would say would be more aligned with the Republicans because he was a governor and he, and he sees yeah. state accountability. And, you know, sometimes Representative Gallagher would argue for a point of view that that uh, that would be more attuned with Democrats, probably due to his IT, you know, his kind of younger IT background that he had. So really was nonpartisan. The other 81 recommendations truly are to the degree that we have opposition. It's parochial. It's you, you appear to be messing with my fiefdom. Yeah, my committee. The, my committee should be thinking of this stuff. Yes. Or my yes. agency or my, yeah. you know, basically my chili. And so we had to deal with that quite a bit. But look, we're getting through there because when you have advocates like Jim Langevin, a representative Jim Langevin and Chris Inglis, yeah. the former deputy director of NSA and the CEO of Southern Company, uh, Tom Fanning or Frank Salifo is here with me or Senator King, Senator Sass, all those kind of people, it, eventually the pressure mounts to do the right thing. And we, yeah. we have a lot of the right thing in there and we'll attack it again next year with more of the right thing. So let me let me let me flip this to Frank. Frank, I'm going to flip this to you in any event. Uh, uh, we've heard the broad outline of the problem that uh, the Solarium Commission is trying to solve. Uh, you also headed up the Homeland Security Advisory Council subcommittee that looked at what it called economic security. Uh, 
Can you draw from the big picture that uh, Mark gave us down to why there are a set of supply chain recommendations in both reports? Absolutely. And let me uh, do two thank yous, not just because you're both on uh, on this uh, uh, amazing podcast with me, but but Mark does deserve a lot of credit for actually following through and making sure that our findings are, are the nouns are translated into verbs, that we actually get some legislative proposals around uh, some of our recommendations. And and Stuart, uh, I had the best uh, uh, mate in a foxhole you could ever ask for in Stuart Baker in terms of driving uh, our economic security report. So we, we, we've now shredded the credibility of the uh, the interview. We're all on the same side. It's true. Uh, Read your Washington Post op-ed. I, I, I really do uh, urge uh, all of your listeners to read that. But, but, but the truth is, is we tried to take some of the findings, and, and clearly I am biased since I we all stand where we sit to, to one extent or another, but we tied, tried to take some of the findings from the Solarium Commission and translate that into actual steps and actions, uh, in this case, the Department of Homeland Security could take to, 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 to better manage its economic security uh, priorities going forward. And, um, and there is continuity here, and it is somewhat helpful. And I think part of that is... The administration, I think, has had good instincts in terms of how to address the uh, the dragon in the room and and China's role in in our economic security uh, uh, concerns. This has been going on for decades. It it obviously uh, uh, um, has gone through the the broader belt belt road initiative made in China 2025. And it came into real stark relief in the in the COVID-19 crisis when uh, we saw just how dependent we were upon China from a supply chain perspective. And and far beyond just the COVID-19 response, DHS has responsibility for critical infrastructure protection. And and here we're we're, we're in, in in some deep trouble. I, I mean, the reality is is we're perilously dependent upon uh, China for a lot of our our critical ele- critical elements of our our supply chain. So, bottom line here is uh, supply chain may not seem like a, a sexy set of issues, but let me tell you, if your weapon systems don't work when you need them to, if your critical infrastructure isn't operating when you need it to. If your individual uh, platforms and systems as as individuals, especially now that so many people are working from home, don't work as they were intended to, this is a serious set of issues that the country's uh, uh, facing right now. And, and only China has the economic wherewithal to really impact our national and economic security. Yeah, I, well, I, I think uh, that makes sense. They are the second biggest and maybe someday soon uh, the biggest uh, uh, economy in the world. Uh, uh, but what I was struck by in the uh, pandemic uh, was the willingness of official uh, uh, sources in Beijing to say, hey, you know, those Americans, they really depend on us for supplies. We could really make life hard for them if they didn't do what we wanted. Uh, and that um, uh, that strategic, uh, we can extort concessions from the Americans because they are buying stuff from us uh, approach is something that I think uh, um, 
made everybody stop and say, gee, I thought I was just buying something cheap and I could have bought it from Mexico or Thailand or China, but China was a little bit cheaper or a little more convenient. Now I see it comes with a different price than it would if it were coming from Thailand. Yeah, I, I, I think you raise a number of key points here, Stuart. I mean, the bottom line is, is we've outsourced so much and we're starting to pay a price for that now. And, and there's an old military adage, amateurs talk strategy, professionals, logistics. Supply chain is the logistic heart of uh, our economies. And, uh, and the reality is uh, we, we've been playing whack-a-mole for quite some time here. So there have been a number of good initiatives promulgated, executive orders such as bulk power executive orders to look at uh, where uh, our uh, transformers are coming from and potential vulnerabilities in that supply chain to clean network initiatives coming out of State Department to broader uh, uh, international initiatives around the Prague principles. But we've been looking at it in isolation. What we really need to do is see how all these efforts can be synced up, netted, and, and, and ultimately uh, uh, utilize in a strategic kind of way. So, Mark, do you want to jump in on some of that? Yeah, uh, let me let me let me push uh, push Mark on the on the question of what we can do with our partners and allies. Uh, a, a phrase we haven't heard much in the last four years. Uh, we'll hear more of it from the Biden administration. Uh, but interestingly, the Trump administration in the last year has launched a bunch of uh, cybersecurity related international partnership. Uh, issues. Do you think that's too late uh, or in the from coming from the wrong people? Or can we actually build a network of uh, like-minded countries that might um, enable us to impose some cybersecurity standards on what we acquire? Well, I mean, the short answer is yes, we can. Uh, you know, in our supply white paper, our supply chain white paper, we made it pretty clear that we don't think the U.S. can do the, the, the reverse isn't true. I don't think the U.S. can do this alone. We can't build a more secure supply chain and re remain competitive on our own. Look, the government can't succeed with the private sector and the country as a whole can't succeed without a strong network of allies and partners. I mean, we have to leverage existing uh, public private partnerships, but also relationships with allies and partners to ensure the security of, of these critical technology supply chains. We do argue for building out our domestic manufacturing capacity, but we're always going to be reliant on a trusted zone of suppliers, assemblers, packagers, even testers for high-tech goods. This means we have to strengthen our ties with partners that share our similar goals, you know, such as moving a supply chain of critical components out of a contested nation like China or an untrusted nation like China, not relying on a critical infrastructure technology that comes from a country like China and the bulk power, uh, the the generators that, that Frank was referring to are exactly those. And when we build these partnerships, we do have to think about a few things. You know, we got to be cognizant of the trustworthiness of their own supply chain, the influence of China on that country, a little bit the impact of geography, you know, if you really start to think about wartime logistics issues, but also the stability of the country. And we have a good batch of partners to work with. We got the, we have the UK, Korea, uh, South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, Sweden, Finland, some other NATO countries, the whole five eyes. Um, and in addition to these core partners, I think we can work with some developing countries as well to pull them from that Chinese influence. I'm, I'm thinking here about Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia. So absolutely, 
This is a problem that's going to have to be solved with allies and partners and developing allies and partners. And I, I got to say, you know, because we saw this in the Cold War, there are allies and there are allies. And even the best allies are in it for themselves first. Uh, and so you always have to worry that uh, when it's convenient, they'll chisel on the standards or cozy up to a, a company or a country that we wouldn't like them cozying up to. So this is not some dewy-eyed uh, 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 world government uh, approach. Uh, it's going to require a lot of vigilance and a lot of uh, aggressive enforcement uh, that uh, is going to create some uncomfortable moments between us and our partners. No, I'd follow up by that and say, you're absolutely right. When I think of the countries you're talking about there, the five eyes in Japan are those countries. And look at Japan. They already began to fund a government initiative to remove um, some startup work going on in China back to Japan. But I think the country that's really critical here is Taiwan. This is one of those things where Taiwan's long-term security is dependent on, on United States guarantees in accordance with the Taiwan Relations Act. We are eventually and perpetually their security partner of choice. But at the same time, they're doing 12% of their trade with us, 25% of their trade with China. And some of that trade with China is, is in this dual-use technology and these kind of components. And eventually, we're going to have to make a deal with Taiwan that has to do with their overall security and with the trustworthiness of our economic supply chain between each other. That's going to be uncomfortable That's, for Taiwan, but it's going to be uncomfortable for us too, because at some level, yeah. a, a, a portion of each of our political parties has been very comfortable living under strategic ambiguity with Taiwan and averting their eyes to this issue. But I don't think that's going to be possible anymore. And even if the security issue weren't percolating as it is, this economic partnership is going to have to be crystallized in a way that says we and Taiwan as two democracies, free and open governments, you know, uh, believe together in a trusted supply chain that doesn't include uh, China on, on most high tech components. So let me flip this back to uh, Frank. Uh, Frank, there's almost no curse word stronger in um, uh, conservative circles than industrial policy. Um, but this sure sounds like industrial policy. Uh, how do you sell that to, uh, uh, to people who believe in national security, but uh, uh, I think the government is not in a good way to pick winners and losers in the industry. You know, you raise a, 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 a great point, Stuart. And, and quite honestly, that was probably a bad word in my uh, uh, lexicon for quite some time here. But, but it's predicated by the threat. And uh, the bottom line is, is uh, uh, we can do this in a free market environment, but we also have the most critical of our critical infrastructure sectors or our lifeline uh, sectors in particular that we really need to get our arms around. And, and I mean, first principle is visibility across our supply chains. And, and quite honestly, we seem to be uh, reacting rather than proactively uh, addressing a, a number of these issues. So 
for years, China has been perceived as an, an imitator. And, and the truth is, is they have been engaged in mass economic uh, and industrial espionage and intellectual property theft. And and uh, but they've moved from imitators to innovators. And, and now is the time I think the U.S. needs to not only uh, enhance some of our capacities at home, but do so uh, with our partners uh, overseas. So. Yes, it's a, it's a tough set of issues. Yes, I never thought I would be using the term industrial policy, but it's not our choice. The adversary has a vote in this matter, and we need to address that and take that on head on. All right. So the, the, the- Look, the U.S. has engaged industrial policy throughout its history in ways ranging from state-owned enterprises like the Tennessee Valley Authority to more subtle interventions that align market forces for greater efficiency, like what we did with Silicon Valley in the 1970s and 80s. So in an era where a foreign government overtly supports their domestic industry, in this case China, free and fair trade and markets for certain goods no longer exist. The Chinese government's intervention on behalf of its national champions has created an unlevel playing field for U.S. and allied partners, companies companies wishing to compete in critical technology markets. So, look, the commission gave a bunch of good examples of this in our report in the back. I mean, none better than probably Semitech, championed by a Republican Congress and a Republican president, to, for the first time, our semiconductor industry was challenged, in this case, by the Japanese. So we've done this for 60 years and we'll continue going forward. We did it in response to COVID. We used the Defense Production Act to buy cotton swabs. Let's, we are in a competition and we're going to need to use every tool at the government's behest. We want to rely on market forces as much as possible. We'll use government intervention when appropriate to protect U.S. companies from unfair and uneven playing fields. Can I just piggyback that? It is the unlevel playing field, Stuart, here, because because how many companies, even the biggest in the United States, thought they were going into business defending themselves against foreign intelligence services and militaries? That's the unlevel playing field we're dealing with today. So obviously, we need to recalibrate some of our approaches and responses there. And, 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 and I do think that many of the recommendations we're making are not only uh, good for our national and economic security, but they are good for our economy as well. I, I, I agree with you. And uh, you, you mentioned in foreign intelligence services uh, and uh, the Homeland Security report, as well as Cyber Solarium report, uh, spend some time on the idea of an, a supply chain intelligence center. Uh, um, can you give us a feel for why that is necessary inside the U.S. government? Mark, you want to take first bite at that apple? Well, first thing I say is I enjoyed the, the Homeland Security report. I felt the economic security report, you know, you guys called out at least 10 explicitly and seven implicitly of the Cyberspace Labor Commissions. I, I can only wish you called out more, but they were really well done in the right places. Um, it was it was like an Academy Award speech. <laughs> it was it was fantastic. The, but I will say the ones that really caught my eye were the Supply Chain Intel Center, your comments on DPA, which reflect what I just said earlier. Um and uh, and the standard setting. So I'll just say all three of them. And I, you can't get away from your, I think it's recommendation 14, standard setting and how crucial that's going to be to the long-term competition with, uh, with uh, China. And that's not about government intervention. That's just about doing our job right in the government and, and showing up for meetings and coordinating the federal government, federal agency approach and then coordinating the federal agencies with the um 
uh, private sector. But getting at the supply chain intel center, this is critical because what we have to do is have an understanding of what the adversary is up to, where our um, supply chains are compromised, and, and, and then be able to provide the guidance out of the executive branch, into either the legislative branch for legislative remedy or to the private sector for normal market forces to address to create trustworthy and secure supply chains. And in the absence of the supply chain intel center, you'll have a dozen center, a dozen flowers will bloom in the federal government. Then the executive branch will create four more and the private sector in frustration will create four of their own. And you'll have 18 lists of things to do instead of one. And that's what the supply chain intel center is. Frank and I are simpletons, right? We've been working this for 25 years. We believe in absolutely finding the solution at one center point. Senator King used to call it one throat to choke. You have to have someone responsible and accountable in the federal government for answering the question. And I think Frank and I both landed on a supply chain intel center as a really critical element. Yeah. And and Frank, we, we recommended that it be at DHS, but that was not a recommendation that was driven principally by DHS wanting it. Uh, we, we heard a lot of uh, folks from outside DHS saying they thought it ought to be there. Why is that? You know, Stuart, we and I was pleasantly surprised to hear this. I mean, we had over 39 briefers uh, to include all the component and agency heads at DHS, but also from the broader interagency community. And, and the bottom line is, is we're trying to fulfill the gap between authorities and capabilities. And our task was to really look at fine tuning DHS's authorities, capabilities and, and structural issues internal to DHS. But we heard from the intelligence community and from some of the other uh, uh, interagency partners that only DHS has that ability to make sure that the private sector isn't an afterthought, but they are genuine customers, uh, genuine customers and producers of information around this. So all things said and done, I, I think we're looking at sort of a joint DHS with some IC input. But but the bottom line is, is given the department's uh, role with the private sector, not as an afterthought, but as a primary uh, consideration that that DHS has to play a critical role in in any stand up of a supply chain intelligence center. So and we heard this also from the private sector themselves, I might note. Yeah, which is a, a real uh, switch from the days when they just said, why would I talk to DHS? Uh, so, Mark, last question. I, I, um, the Supply Chain uh, uh, Intelligence Center and several of your other uh, recommendations are moving into the NDAA that is in a crucial final drafting stage. Uh, when will we know what the NDAA has done uh, so that we can uh, prepare our scorecard for the two committees? So um, the, the uh, first, uh, we, as I said, we had about 20 to 25 hours in. The Supply Chain Insult Center is, is next year. What's in this year is an informa- is a ICC within DHS says that I think if, it, if the Supply Chain Center went to um, DHS would sit under there. So I think we're probably one step away, but that's a, that's okay. DHS needs the time to really build its information uh, communication center and its information sharing tendrils and ligature uh, to work both with other federal agencies and then with the private sector. That's still probably a few steps less than, than Director Krebs or anyone would want right now, but I know they're working on it and this legislation will help. So I think the legislation, the, the FY. 
21 National Defense Authorization Act should kind of go out for a vote after Thanksgiving in the first week to two weeks of December. And there's some time frames in there and one chamber votes before the other. And then you have the, the bill and then the president can choose to sign it or not sign it. I think he has about 10 days to make that decision. And um, uh, and then, you know, if he were to not sign it, then there you look for a veto to over, you know, override the veto. Um, you know, I we haven't gotten to that in the past. I think the National Defense Authorization Act generally ends up on a signable version when it's passed by the, the, House, yeah. the uh, House and Senate. Even in transition years, this has happened. I think we're in 60 plus years of the NDA getting signed every year. That's probably why we picked the NDAA as the vehicle to ride most of our recommendations. And you know, I had good advice from representatives and senators about what to do. So I think we're in that kind of time frame. And then Commissioners like uh, Frank will sit down with with my staff and uh, and uh, they'll direct us on on which of the 20, 20 to twenty five to focus on for for next year. And there, I think the supply chain intel center is going to be critical because when you have a validating product like the DHS Economic Security Report that comes alongside it, you know, then you start to realize I have multiple lines of bearing saying I have a problem. You know, and and in truth, the IC has has tinkered with this idea over the last few years as well. So you know. The federal government's been thinking about it. So bottom line is all these lines of bearing come together. We'll come up with a good recommendation, work it through the appropriate committees, and hopefully see something like that in the beginning of the 117th Congress. Okay, Mark Montgomery uh, and Frank Salufo, thanks for a, uh, you know, I dare I say it, stimulating discussion of supply chain uh, problems. Uh, So that was terrific. I also want to thank Charles Halaput, Mark McCarthy, Brian Egan for joining us on the uh, 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 News Roundup. Uh, Thanks to Ken Wiseman of Wiseman Sounds Design for our uh, theme. This has been episode 338 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Be sure to send us notes and comments, cyberlockpodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest, uh, we'll send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw Podcast mugs, which uh, uh, Mark and Frank, you're going to get. Uh, And then... uh, Follow me on Twitter. I will occasionally ask for comment uh, from the Twitterati about which stories we ought to run. Uh, Rate the show, please. iTunes, Google Play, wherever. Uh, Leave us a review and then join us uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.